Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And the man keeping this show on the rails, despite the subject matter, is Joseph Wren. How are we doing tonight, Joe? You gave me control of the train. Not only have I loaded up all of the coal, but I am pushing this fuck to its limits. If 88 miles per hour is possible, we're going to reach it before we get to the edge of this cliff. And then God help you if we don't make it to the other side. Good evening, all of you gruesome people. Did you just slide a uh, Back to the Future 3 reference into a horror show? I did, because if you think about what happens in the entire timeline of those films, it's actually quite horrifying. I I would like, you know, we were talking before. What happened to old Biff? That's the question. (laughs) Who cares? Old Biff was an asshole. All the Biffs were an asshole. (laughs) Yeah, okay, true. Yeah, true enough. So uh, we were talking before we started recording, and uh, we've been, I've been kind of thinking about this thing. So I watched this movie last night on Netflix, a Polish horror film called Hellhole. Uh, Have you seen this, Joe? Have not. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to put this on your radar. I'm not going to say we're going to do an episode on it because I kind of don't think it's necessary. But if you get a chance, go watch this movie. Uh, It should probably be on Netflix for a while because they don't tend to get rid of stuff. But it's one of those things where you... You get recommended a movie and no one tells you, yep, that's the one. Um, no one tells you what the movie is really about. They just say it's a Polish horror film. And then you watch it and by the end of it, you go, well, that's, wow, that was a lot. <laughs> well, that was a lot. And it's, I mean, it's fantastic. It's really well acted. The special effects are neat. The setting is just, oh, it's it's just oppressive and, and dark and evil. It's, it's so good. But um, it is one of those movies that you also have to be like, yeah, it's a bit gross. It, it's I, I have a scale by which I measure how uh, gross a horror movie is going to get. And it's how I describe it as a movie if it's damp or not. If a horror film is damp, you know it's especially gory. I like that looking at the cast list, none of these names are standing out to me. Those tend to be your diamonds of films if there's no expectations of this person's going to act like this. But I do like how the cover, at least what's on IMDb right now, is either a serious Martin Luther type monk. Is that what it is? Uh, He's Catholic. He's not a Protestant. Well, neither was Luther. Well, I mean... It, rather like Nietzsche once said that uh, Jesus was either the first or the last Christian, I would argue that Luther was the first or the last Lutheran. So fair enough. <laughs> so I mean, uh, talking about like that type of history and talking about that type of movie, you know, when you say you don't recognize anybody in the cast, you know, it's going to be a good one. That sort of drives directly into the subject of tonight's episode, and it's a movie that's been that I've been thinking about for a while. So just. As always, strap in. You know, horror and true crime are a great match. More so than drama or really any other genre, horror is this perfect sort of carrier wave to deliver a true crime message. And this connection isn't new at all either. Um, Fritz Lang, very famous German director, uh, he released this absolute just classic of a film called M, which was a serial, uh, serial killer film released in 1931. And for those of you who are looking for a real education in the classics, not just of horror, but just classic cinema, I can't recommend this enough. Really, anything Fritz Lang did, but definitely M. His It's a Wonderful Life is my preferred version. You know, I don't think I've seen that one. 
We'll talk after the show. Got it. <laughs> so uh, big budget dramas and documentary series are all the rage in true crime these days. And that says nothing of the explosive growth of the true crime podcast. I am willing to wager that a good number of our listeners are subscribed to at least one true crime podcast. And I'm a person with a long term fascination with like serial killers and cult leaders. Uh, since I've been a kid, I've been reading books about BTK, Dennis Rader, uh, Henry Lee Lucas and Jim Jones. I mean, at least since my early teens and it runs in my family. A uh, number of people like my mother are actually big true crime fans. And yes, before you can crack any jokes, Joe, I in fact have family members. Just when I thought I was away from Jim Jones, you pull me back in everywhere I go. Every podcast I work on, somebody is obsessed with Jim Jones. One of the most horrifying stories I've ever read and it's not a story. It's a thing that happened. And I cannot figure out how, but it's a lesson for anyone now. You need to be very careful what set of beliefs you subscribe to and what living human being you're going to follow into the wilderness because that is one of the worst might be up there with some of the greater tragedies in oh. the history of mankind. Oh yeah. And you know, the whole people's uh, temple debacle for lack of a better word, uh, caused something of a moral panic at the time. And as you know, from my episode about the blood on Satan's claw, I'm extremely critical of moral panics. I'm pretty good at separating fact from fiction, knowing what social trends we need to think about. And let's get real. Most of the things we are warned about in our lifetimes are bunk. As it turns out, there has never been a rash of people spiking kids' Halloween candy with LSD, and there are not satanic cults in every suburb. So please understand that I'm not engaging in any sort of intentional fear-mongering in my commentary with this episode. And uh, as a courtesy, this episode is going to talk about some pretty intense act of violence with some implied sexual assault. So if that's a subject that's not for you, we get it. Skip this episode. No hard feelings. Tonight, we're going to talk about an extremely uncomfortable 1983 Austrian true crime slasher hybrid film called Angst. This is the very epitome of a quote-unquote rough watch. The outer edge of what you might consider traditionally normal horror flicks before you start really getting into the extreme side of horror cinema like August Underground. It has enough artfulness that I consider it to be something of a classic, a, a real shining light in a hyper-specific subgenre. Moreover, it kind of predicted Henry, portrait of a serial killer in some regards. And if you wanted a real bummer of a night, you could watch Angst and William Lustig's Maniac as a double feature. But this isn't a typical horror movie commentary and review show. Angst might not be the best known horror flick, but it has some serious art house cred. There are plenty of good reviews or commentaries about angst online. I'll link a few that I found interesting in the show notes, of course. And reading those reviews has been very eye-opening, actually. But they don't seem to address the issue that I'm encountering with this movie and a few others. To properly explain what I mean, I need to digress to a much more modern thing. More media savvy or maybe just terminally online members of the audience are probably well aware of the newest bit of serial killer programming available. In a real-time example of how not to name a TV show, 
there's been a series come out called Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Yeah, that's the name. Didn't they already make that show? Or was that a made-for-TV movie a few years ago? There's been a bunch of Dahmer media uh, in the last few years. There was a movie just called Dahmer. And then there was a uh, graphic novel and a movie made about the graphic novel called My Friend Dahmer. Uh, it was written by a guy named Durf. Uh, he, his, his real name's like Brad Durfman or something. But uh, Durf went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer. So it covers those years from uh, a kind of outside perspective looking in on Jeffrey Dahmer. And it, it's, it's interesting. Do we need more Dahmer media? We have actual interviews with this person where he laid it out as best as anyone could what's wrong with him well you're kind of leaning in on a point i've been i've been really thinking about i know that the name of the show is just abysmal and it's garnered some pretty interesting and thoughtful commentaries across larger and better funded media outlets specifically the show seems to be eliciting some thinking about how the show might be using some of the worst days in the surviving victims and victims families lives for profit Check the show notes if you would like. Uh, we put some summaries in there that might help you out. Another comment I'm seeing a lot is asking, do we really need another program about Dahmer or any other serial killer? Ultimately, it looks like Netflix's uh, you know ethos of fund anything for ratings. It might have finally blown up on them. Okay, so some disclosures straight out of the gate. Um, I haven't watched the new Dahmer program, and I'm probably not going to. I just genuinely don't have the time. Second, I don't think there's anything wrong with watching this series if you want to watch it, and I won't shame you for doing that. Finally, I'm not a saint. I have watched tons of documentaries about serial killers, along with having listened to podcasts and read plenty of books about this subject, too. I have a real interest in the dark side of human behavior and of human history. That's probably not shocking, and I'm willing to guess that many of our listeners are kind of in that same category. So understand that none of the concepts I am talking about here come from supposed moral high ground. I have way more questions and rough concepts than I have answers. I'm with you. I've watched plenty of documentaries throughout the years and whatever you want to call that thing 60 Minutes does at the end of the day. I think in 2022, we can all agree the best way to get your point across as to what should and should not be made is with the bottom line. If you don't agree with it, don't watch it. It's that simple. Yeah. And my thesis at this point goes something like this. There is a chance of glorifying or whitewashing the, the absolute terrible damage done by people like serial killers in true crime media. I think this risk extends to a lot of other subjects as well, like war or you know, more quote-unquote normal common types of violence. This point requires a lot of nuance and requires some examples of how a movie can accurately portray the horror of the serial killer or mass murderer without making it seem cool. Living in such a media-saturated environment as ours requires a strong set of instincts for critique, and I hope that through this episode as well as the next, we can at least move that needle for our listeners on this subject. And for tonight's episode, we turn to angst and we ask a question. Does portrayal of more realistic violence help deflate and remove the celebrity of these sorts of murderers? In order to answer that question, 
we are going to have to have a rough synopsis of angst, as well as talk about the technical and uh, conceptual elements of the show. So let's get to it. The plot of angst is deceptively simple. A violent criminal, listed as the letter K in the credits, is released from prison. He decides to get back to work right away. And after his first failed attempt at a murder, K finds himself at a large country house and breaks in. Shortly thereafter, the home's inhabitants come back and things proceed to go bad. Very, very bad. I genuinely think that the violence sequences in this movie are much worse than something like in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Well, I don't want to take anything away from this movie, many of the kills in that flick feel a little too cinematic. They're pretty gnarly, no doubt, but they lack the simple, awful reality of angst's violence. There are a pair of distinct points happening here that make angst distinct from movies like Henry. To start, there is a distinct lack of dialogue. Very little conversation happens with our characters. Instead, the exposition is handled via voiceover and read in this very uh, dispassionate, matter-of-fact manner. The voiceover is based, at least in part, from the confessions of Peter Kutten, a German serial killer from the early 1900s. For reference, Kutten was known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. As you might have guessed, Kutten committed some of the most gruesome murders in European history, at least at that time period. If that name sounds familiar, he was covered in a two-part series by Last Podcast on the Left, and I think I'm going to link that in the show notes. Uh, They did a pretty good overview of his admittedly very awful crimes, so if you want to know more, go look those up. The second feature used in angst that sets it apart is the use of the camera. The cinematography is unique. Instead of a standard static shot or just following the actors around, the camera is always in the most uncomfortable place possible. It's either right on top of the actor being filmed or just beneath them aimed upwards. In some shots where the killer K is on the ground, it actually like follows him down there kind of crawling low. And somehow the placement of the camera achieves what I thought was basically impossible. Making a delicious knockwurst lunch seem unappetizing. It's, it's truly, <laughs> truly a technical achievement. But where the camera really excels is the use of a body-mounted camera rig. I found some photos of it on a cinematography forum. Uh, they basically went missing. I was no longer able to find them. Uh, I think I've heard it referred to as a snorri rig, but I can't remember where I saw that or found that. So uh, camera people, cinematographers, if you're listening, let me know if I'm correct. Email us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com and let us know. So this body rig allows you to be almost always attached to K, following him through these frenzied, awful headspaces. The direction in cinematography is genuinely inspired. Gerald Cargill, who uh, co-wrote, directed, co-produced it, along with the editor and uh, cinematographer Zbigniew Radzinski, genuinely knock it out of the park in this film. No other movie looks like angst, and definitely no other film feels like angst. Sadly, though, this movie seems to have mostly tanked the film career of Gerald Cargill, as he did remarkably little afterwards, or remarkably little I could find in the English language market. I've always kind of wondered after watching this movie if this movie just maybe, I don't know, like went too far for Austrian audiences or something. I I don't know. I can only guess. Um, 
Joe, do you know what the uh, camera work in this movie reminds me of now that I'm thinking of? Manhunter? No. Uh, have you ever played any of the Gears of War games? Absolutely. Uh, have all three that were originally released on the 360. Uh, spoilers for the ending of Gears 2, I think. Or maybe <laughs> I'm thinking Gears 3. Uh, the last boss fight in that game is hold down the X button. <laughs> so one of the things that I really the hammer uh, of dawn does all the work. Yeah, one of the things I really uh, love about that game is the camera positioning. It's like it's it's an over the shoulder camera positioning. It's one of the first games that really hammered home this idea of third person action, where the character is slightly shifted to the left. You always had third person. We're we're used to seeing 3D Link in Zelda: Ocarina of Time. But then Gears and the Arkham games shifted the character to the left, and sometimes it gets annoying. Even to this day, when I play Sniper Elite 5, I probably have it in mono in my ears because always hearing something slightly to the left drives me insane. <laughs> well, I, I, one of the things I, I love about this movie is it was the first place I've ever seen in cinema where they put the camera in a lot of places over the, the main character's shoulder. Now, could it have been in a slightly more pleasant movie and I would have enjoyed it? Yeah, probably. But that over-the-shoulder look at someone while they're doing something really awful. So man. this wasn't that action movie from a few years ago, the first person. I oh, think it was actually called Henry. Uh, Hardcore Henry. Hardcore Henry. Yeah, hard, Hardcore Henry, awesome. Hardcore Harry. I, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I actually, I'm going to talk very briefly about that movie uh, in another review. Long story short, it's 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 in the works. It's hard to write, but anyway, it's happening. <laughs> so uh, to get back on our point, uh, I've pointed out that there's a handful of like thoughtful reviews and commentaries that exist around this movie between uh, video essays and written sources. But let's be blunt here. Compared to something like Friday the 13th, there's really not a huge following for angst. It is a German-language, Austrian-directed and produced film with a tiny cast and honestly a pretty small budget. So it comes as no surprise that the written material for this film that's available in English is scant. Uh, unless, of course, you're talking about the source material. And yeah, that was not a, a slip of the tongue. Recall back to the beginning of this episode where I called this a true crime film. Specifically, the events of this film are based on the brutal attacks of an Austrian mass murderer named Werner Niesick. Recapping Niesick's crimes are unnecessary here as they're basically mimicked in the details of the film's murders. Of course, some of the details have had to be changed just for the sakes of cinema, but that's true of any movie really. Uh, in a perverse way, the movie serves as a biographical character study of Nisik's behavior, and by focusing on these murders, arguably by ascribing these murders as the most important event in his life, we sort of see a brutal truth about these subjects. It's also worth pointing out that there's not a lot of good English language sources about Nisik himself either. I guess in the shadow of more like hideous American criminals, an obscure mass murderer in Europe doesn't really pop our cultural needle terribly much. Talk about the traditional use of ultraviolence in independent films or films that are less mainstream. I remember the first time I saw what you would call a grindhouse movie, and it was not Last House on the Left, but it was one of those films that came 
after Texas Chainsaw, after Deliverance, and it seems like they were using the brutality of the scene to make the audience feel uncomfortable. And that's the stigma, I think, with a lot of art house films and a lot of independent horror movies where they use how brutal it is to make you feel it for real. That's a scary place to be when your movie is about an actual evil person. You know, when we talk about a person's life, whether they're famous or infamous and whether or not it's in cinema or not, it's kind of unfair to chalk up a single event uh, as a maybe just the biggest thing for an individual. But I also think that a brutal triple murder spurred on just by sheer indulgent malevolence, it's that's a pretty hard event horizon to get across, you know? And at that point, you don't want to get the descriptor mass murderer stricken onto your Wikipedia entry, right? Uh, I also think that we lack a language to describe these sorts of events or these sorts of people. Nisek was a human, sure, but I can't fault anyone for calling him evil or a monster. And call me crazy, but I'm not overly concerned with Werner Nisek's feelings, you know? It can be tempting to want to judge a movie like Angst harshly on the account of the violence and the brutality. It's not a fun movie in the classic sense. And I can't honestly recommend it to most people. You really gotta like realistic visceral but ultimately staged violence to enjoy this film and i'm sort of stuck with saying that i admire this movie even though i don't particularly enjoy it and that's not a criticism either there's a lot of positive elements in this film to discuss the whole cast is great irvin later uh the film's mass murdering k is genuinely really daring and physical in this movie he's had a pretty successful diverse career uh if you know, he like looks familiar to you. He was both in Das Boot and the Underworld series. Yeah, the vampire action movie Underworld. Strange career, I think, but you know, nonetheless impressive. Uh, another standout feature of Angst is the music. It was done by Klaus Schulz. Uh, he's an electronic musician. It's icy and alienating, and it just fits the film perfectly. Uh, if the name Klaus Schulz is also tickling your memory just a little bit, he was briefly a member of Tangerine Dream and went on to score movies like Manhunter and the 2021 remake of Dune. Uh, he has a pretty extensive list of solo albums outside of movie making as well. Uh, and if you like really synthy stuff, it'll be up your alley. Uh, check out the show notes. Uh, we put an especially groovy uh, Klaus Schultz live appearance in there for you. Okay, so Joe, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you know, we've talked in episodes past about plenty of cinematic killers. Is Angst and its killer, K really any different from a purely his purely fictional counterpart? I think you can answer that question the same way we did earlier, talking about independent films and how they use the raw feeling of violence to make the audience uncomfortable. The difference between this film and something like Texas Chainsaw, and that's a terrible example because the source idea of that film did come from reality. So to look at a killer like K, knowing that this is a based on a true story, even though they don't say that, props to you guys for not buying into that trend. 
I think the difference is this is a story that we're telling that has an evil person in it or something like the Silent Hill games where you're being chased by something that is truly evil. At the end of the day, it's a fictitious entity. It's a fictitious person. This is supposed to be based off of a single person who actually existed and the brutality of the acts that person committed is far worse, but may not be as visually appealing. So I think the filmmaker in this case is trying to use something real to make the audience feel uncomfortable, to make them feel horrified, to make them feel scared. This could actually happen. Is your question the viewing of the film or are we talking about the end result of the audience where you go home after the film and what you feel is real whether or not it came from someone's imagination or came from reality and someone adapted it for film you know that's a really interesting question and i i will say straight off the top i don't precisely have an answer you know I, if you asked me in a couple of weeks i could probably you know have a, a better thought out answer. I, I think we're in this weird space where I, I worry sometimes that when you're really into really violent media, um, I, I'm not a believer that like violent media makes people violent. I don't think that's true at all. I think the science doesn't bear it out. But I do think that it can be very easy to mistake real violence and fake violence in, in a certain sense that, you know, most people will go through the entirety of their lives without ever really getting in a fight. And I think that's probably a pretty good thing. But uh, at one point in my life, I worked security. Sometimes fight, you know, fights broke out and you had to deal with it. It's not fun. It's never fun. It's part of the reason I don't do security now. That life is rough. And there are a lot of places where, you know, I think people don't understand the really real uh parts of violence. I think we're we're a community and a culture largely removed from violence in a, in a big way. I think the internet's changed that a lot. Uh, I think people are more aware of war and war crimes and atrocities and just crime in general, specifically the most violent varieties. I think we're we're way closer to that. I agree with you. I don't think violent media makes violent people. I don't think video games are bad in and of themselves. But let's tie it back to Dahmer for a second since we started off talking about that person and that new show. Didn't that come up in one of his interviews when they asked him, why did you do this or what built you up to do these things? And his answer was it started with porn and then that wasn't enough. That was uh, Ted Bundy. You're thinking of Bundy, uh, at the end of his life, Bundy was being interviewed by Dr. James Dobson, who, if that name is ringing a bell, uh, that's the focus on the family nutcase. Um, he was interviewed by Dr. James Dobson. He tried saying, oh, well, it was porn. I don't buy that for a split second. I think that was uh, Ted Bundy being what Ted Bundy was, an asshole, and trying to blame something other than his decision making. Like, I don't doubt the guy had a very bad life. Uh, it's all uh, coming back to me now. Yeah. So that's how far away I am from that particular case. Yeah. And Let's let the serial killer defend himself. <laughs> or maybe don't. Maybe don't do that. Just a thought. Anyway. <laughs> you can watch a lot of the trial on YouTube. Some of it is ridiculous. Oh, sure. You know, I think there's a thing here that we don't really realize. And that's 
reality in some regards is a lot easier to talk about than than fiction. Uh, sure, there's just more research involved. I think we have a language to describe our lived experience. Uh, fans of my previous podcast, some of you might remember, I did a show called Blinders Off. Uh, it was kind of a history and current events type show. Uh, know that we had to do pretty exhaustive research and interviewing to get our stories. Here with the Fright Lab, we're just watching movies and drawing lines between a bunch of other things, drinking coffee, talking back and forth. But having to deal with the just the facts, ma'am, gives you a very clear set of boundaries that you're supposed to work within. Fiction is kind of another animal, right? I don't want to fall too deep in the weeds of like collegiate level film criticism, but I also don't want to just sound like someone just making stuff up on the fly either. A tension exists between what a director or writer intends with their material and what the audience ends up interpreting from the work itself. Plenty of people, all of whom smarter than me, have spent plenty of time trying to determine the best relationship between creator, material, and audience. For me, the jury is still out as to what's best here. In the case of angst, should we be concerned with what Gerald Cargill was trying to say? And if we are concerned with that, does that change our feelings about a movie like this? At some point, we will likely end up having to wrestle with the implications of stuff like auteur theory and the like, but I, I don't want to go there tonight. You know, true crime is just having this massive boom. And I tend to think that the biggest podcasters dealing with true crime these days are actually surprisingly sensitive in their discussion. Shows like Last Podcast on the Left, My Favorite Murder, Red Handed, and Morbid do a really good job of not glamorizing the murderers and try to offer more on the humanity of their victims. And I don't envy the research they have to do either. I have a pretty strong stomach, but going through the crime scene photos or police reports for that kind of stuff it's not for me. And some of the most recent documentaries I've seen have been better on that front, at least better than they were in the 90s or the 2000s. All in all, we're in a better place than we were. But I also recall a lot of discussion of serial killers from the mid-90s up to the last decade being... Well, not great. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite movies of all time is The Silence of the Lambs. Hannibal Lecter might be one of the finest movie villains, horror or otherwise, ever created. But the good Dr. Lecter is pure fiction. Most mass murderers and serial killers are pathetic and vicious. Even the example you used earlier of Ted Bundy, who seems so smooth and so smart, really wasn't that impressive of a human being. He was just a violent sociopath. All surface, no real depth. Dennis Rader, uh, better known as BTK, seemed to have it all together. Uh, he was a family man with a decent job and a position at his local church. But so what? He was a vicious murderer. I know plenty of people with stable jobs and nice houses and families who aren't vicious murderers. Congratulations for doing the bare minimum, Dennis Rader, I, I guess. There's just nothing admirable about these sorts of people. The hardest part of a film like Angst is its best part. Angst does not spare the audience with the details of sexually motivated murder. The crimes of Werner Niesick and to a lesser extent Peter Curtin are shown for what they actually were. 
the feeling you have in the pit of your stomach while watching these attacks or desire to look away from the screen, whichever the case you have, is actually correct. That's the correct feeling to have. Uh, the psychologist Victor Frankel is credited as saying something to the effect of abnormal reactions to abnormal situations are, in fact, normal. I think about that a lot, especially in light of how films work. In the text of a film, you are often seeing events that are completely out of the norm. For instance, how would the presence of superheroes recreate our social contract? The idea of normal, just baseline normal humanity would be shifted around. I mean, I, that, I mean, it's probably the basis of why Alan Moore wrote The Watchmen, but we're not going to get into that here. I, I digress. It would change the timing, right? <laughs> I mean... That's sure. why these films are uncomfortable. And I know eventually we're going to talk about uh, the one that comes to mind is Audition for me. Oh, yeah. It's a surreal mind fuck of a film until the last 10 minutes when she starts to brutalize him and the scene doesn't stop. You're waiting for something to happen and it doesn't and it keeps going on and that's what makes these films uncomfortable. This is the abnormal response in an abnormal situation. What you're seeing right now is not normal. You feel like it's not okay because it's not. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. You hit, you absolutely nailed that. The disgust you feel with Irvin Lader's depiction of the character K, or um, I forgot the actress's name in uh, Takashi Miike's audition, that feeling you get about their behavior is the correct reaction. You are not supposed to like the reality of vicious, random murder. Angst and the film we're going to cover in our next episode, they tell the real story of murder and murderers. But we're going to wrap that for here this week. Um, we've got another episode coming next that is going to uh, detail this idea a lot further, I think. So that wraps us up. Uh, please check out our show notes uh, to get all the links that I mentioned. Uh, there's going to be some reviews and articles about angst. Uh, there's going to be some stuff about the new series about Dahmer. Uh, as well, you should check out the true crime podcasts I've mentioned in the unlikely event you've never heard them before. I'm sure most people have heard last podcast or my favorite murder, but red-handed and morbid are a little less well-known by comparison. Uh, they do a really wonderful job of narrating and offering context for true crime. So what do you think about angst? Is it the most realistic example of actual mass murder? And if not, what do you think is the best example? What's another example of another extreme horror movie we should check out otherwise? Let us know by emailing thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, provided Twitter doesn't completely implode by the time this episode <laughs> comes out. Way uh, to date this episode. Uh, yeah. Uh, but follow us on Twitter, I guess, uh, at fright underscore lab underscore pod. Uh, we're going to post links to the show there as well as just, you know, interesting articles or fun horror imagery. You get the idea. Now, you should also follow the intrepid Joseph Wren as his other shows. Uh, Joseph, would you kindly let our audience know about your other work? If you insist, if you love all things heavy metal, if you love all the metal bands as much as I do, hard rock, heavy metal, black metal, doom, whatever your taste may be, 
You need to listen to all the podcasts at DiscussMetal.com, where we talk about metal topics. We talk about elitism and gatekeeping, and we talk about the satanic panic. I mentioned it on a previous episode. There are so many podcasts. We've been doing this for six years. And if your favorite band is not on the list, you can send us an email. But what I want you to do right now, I want you to look in whatever app you're listening to this podcast on, and I want you to find the spot where you can give us a five-star review, or you can leave comments, or you can send emails, or you can send messages to Lucas and I, and we will answer your questions on an episode of this podcast. The Fright Lab is, as always, written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum, with Joseph Ren uh, handling our engineering and producing. He and I are the only hosts and co-hosts at this time. We appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next time. One last thing before we go. Uh, independent musicians, independent artists, we love indie art and we love indie music. If you are making any uh, horror-adjacent music, be that the sort of ambient soundtracks you hear in the backgrounds of our episodes, or just horror-related metal, punk, whatever... We want to hear about it, and if it would be okay with you, we want to share it on our show. So please read it, reach out to us at our email address, and yeah, we look forward to hearing from you. I don't want to make a joke out of someone's last name. I really don't, but it's, it's a Polish last name, and I always have a hard time pronouncing those. It's okay. It'll be the ending of the show. We'll have a good two-plus minutes at the end where Lucas tries to say... <laughs> this is a big new Rizbinski. As always, the Fright Lab is written, researched, etc. by me, Lucas Shokum, along with uh, Joho... Uh, well, Joho. Along with Joho. Hi, hi! Hey! This point requires a lot of nuance. Nuance? <laughs> Come on, man, Lucas, you wrote this. A lot of our music is like just so perfect in terms of like that little ding, ding, ding. That was a perfect little the transition <laughs> spot. That was really good. Um, I'm really happy with how that accidentally worked.